Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. The risk has never been higher for a museum. There's absolutely never been a time where museums are at as much risk as they are now. Anthony Amore is the Director of Security and Chief Investigator for the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum in Boston. He is also the President of Copley Research, LLC, a licensed investigation firm servicing high net worth clients and law firms in the greater Boston area. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this idea is a, called theory of mind. This idea that you know you understand that other beings can have thoughts or perceive things differently from you. And in humans, it emerges at an early age. Yuna Wong is a policy researcher for the RAND Corporation. She specializes in national security topics, including deterrence in the age of artificial intelligence and autonomous systems, and strategic wargaming to support U.S. Department of Defense and NATO strategy development. That's a really good. That's a really good question. What we do in the Western world doesn't typically work in the environment that we're in. So I work in probably or, or mostly the most horrendous environments: Libya, Yemen, Iraq, Syria, other places as well. And so those frameworks don't work uh, with, within the areas that I work in. Michael Padilla Pagan Payano is the founder and CEO of Altheria Consultancy, a global strategic advisory and risk management firm with a focus on the Middle East and North Africa markets. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Anthony, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm so, so interested to speak with you. Uh, you're in a very specific vertical market. It's museum and museum security. Uh, tell us how this uh, COVID-19 is, has impacted your business. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff going on there that wasn't happening before. It's uh, an amazing time. I mean, uh, to have a museum closed to the public um, and have the entire neighborhoods, the entire state shut down, uh, makes securing a place like this daunting. It, it's an unusual thing for everyone to know your institution is closed, to know that employees are not reporting to work, to know that there are no witnesses on the street because there's no one out here. We're in the middle of a, a part of Boston called the Fenway, which we're surrounded by colleges and another museum. So it's a very busy area. And it's it's like looking at Westworld out, there's nobody out there. And it's, uh, it's a scary time for uh, an institution like mine. Now, as a coincidence, we happen to be close to an anniversary of probably the biggest biggest art theft in history, or one of them. Tell us about that. The biggest property theft in the history of the world happened here in, um, on March 18, 1990, just as St. Patrick's Day was turning into the following day at 124 in the morning, uh, two thieves disguised as police officers approached our employee entrance and uh, told the guard that they were responding to a disturbance and against our policies and protocol. The guard, the, you know, the human error we all worry about, allowed the the fake police officers in and they um, took the two guards, they cuffed them, they tied them up in the basement essentially, and then spent 81 minutes in our museum stealing 13 pieces of art valued at well over a half a billion dollars. You've had some recent thefts inside the COVID pandemic. In other words, here we now have new yeah. procedures in place, new security in place, or lack of maybe, depends. And I've read that commercial burglaries are up in general. So how do these two new current thefts impact the uh, museum industry? Well, uh, one, the first happened about 
three weeks ago now at um, Christ Church at Oxford University in uh, the United Kingdom, and thieves broke into the MT Museum and stole three paintings, including one of a warrior on a horse by Van Dyke. And all told, that was over $12 million. And then two weeks later, thieves did a a smashing grab at a small museum in the Netherlands where they um, smashed open the front glass door, ran in and pulled a um, Van Gogh from the walls and ran out quicker than the police could respond. Um, Again, it seems they understand that there are no witnesses on the street. There's no one inside those institutions to intercept them or even slow them down. So when you take it, when you look at an institution like mine in the middle of Boston, which is now like being in the middle of a ghost town, you you have to change the way you do security and you have to um, make sure that you're ever more resilient. My philosophy has always been that fortification is not the answer. It's time. In other words, if you have time to respond to a threat, you're safer than the fortification. I have to say, you and I are in complete agreement. The time is such an important issue. And it's an essential layer of security here at my museum where the entrance is very far from the art. So there's a big assembly area. There's living rooms and restaurants and and, uh, coat checks and gift shops long before you ever get to the art in our museum, which is technically in a separate building, which is completely secured at all perimeters. So time is a great manner of protection for us because you're precisely right. In the time it would take someone to break through, say, our glass entry, get all the way through other barriers to our art, remove it from a wall and run out, We'd have plenty of time for police response. We're fortunate in that our museum on three sides is surrounded by three different colleges, each with sworn police officers assigned to them. And they keep a careful eye out for our museum. So not only are the Boston police very, very close to us, but we have people literally across the street, armed professional police officers who hear 911 calls and respond to us uh, regularly. So we're very safe, but as you know, and your listeners know, there's no 100% security. So we're very vigilant. How's the uh, virus impacting first responders and security personnel in that area, particularly? Well, we, we the Boston police have not been ravaged the way, say, the NYPD has. Um, they're taking great precautions. I would say in terms of security personnel, Our typical guards who do gallery security, as opposed to our facility security people, two different branches, Um, the people who would be here to watch those who would be visiting and looking at the art, they're home. Our museum has been very generous in making sure that they're paid, too, so that we don't lose them. But I suspect industry-wide, the longer that this goes on, museums and cultural institutions around the country are going to have to face the decision as to whether to furlough these um, employees who are staying home, the challenge becomes once we reopen, will they be available to work? So that I think is probably the biggest concern for people like me across the country. Do you anticipate an increase in theft attempts uh, or thefts in the art world? You know, whenever economies go bad, uh, you know, things like gold, art, guns, those things go way up in value, right? Because people think it's a tangible asset. Any any yeah. discussions about those uh forecasting that problem, problem, possible problem? Sadly, yes. I mean, when um, when museums around the country started announcing their closures because of the pandemic, I had said to people in the industry that the risk has never been higher for a museum. There's absolutely never been a time where museums are at as much risk as they are now. And shortly thereafter, the Oxford and uh, Van Gogh thefts occurred. And it's one of those instances where you hate to be proven right. 
truly hate to be proven right. I suspect that before this is over, there'll be more attempts. Thieves, thieves see art theft as a crime of opportunity. And when they get wind of the fact that other art has been stolen around the world worth millions, they try. They try to steal paintings. They try to steal high value masterpieces. But of course, the flip side is turning those things into money is extremely hard. Oftentimes you will steal art, but they're unable to sell the, uh, the illicit goods. Any information, and this is kind of a weird question, but any information on conversion rates? So if I steal the Mona Lisa, do I sell it to the guy for a million and the collector knows it's worth five million? I mean, you got to have some money to get into this business. You got to be super rich to get in the stolen art business. Well, um, the, the interesting thing is I wrote a book about this topic called Stealing Rembrandts. And it, it goes over what happens when a masterpiece is stolen. And the conventional wisdom is that those are sold to these guys in their secret layers for millions of dollars so they can enjoy it on their own. But there's really no precedent for that sort of thing to happen. There might be one case somewhere in, in another country, but specifically speaking, the United States and um, Western Europe, you don't see a masterpiece like a, uh, like a uh, Leonardo that you just mentioned or a Rembrandt stolen for a rich person to keep all to themselves. Usually those sorts of pieces are stolen. And then when they find they can't sell them, they put them into hiding. So the conversion rate for a masterpiece is extremely low. It's microscopic if there is one at all. However, for lesser known works of art that aren't as valuable and by that, you know, it's all relative. I'm talking about things that are still worth tens of thousands of dollars by artists whose names aren't household names. Those, th those things do get stolen and they do get converted. So the short answer is the conversion rate is much higher for uh, much higher uh, for a lesser value piece. I guess it's an inverse relationship between uh, the value and the uh, saleability. How do you feel you're going to come out of this in the end? Are we going to learn new lessons? I, I am hearing positive things at the end of the tunnel. It's painful now, but I think we're going to adopt some new paradigms that are going to be useful in the future. I think you're right. I think um, we always learn from tragedy and from unfortunate circumstances. I think when museums reopen worldwide, one of the things, and especially in the United States, we're going to have to learn to adapt to and secure against the idea that people will be entering our museums wearing masks and face coverings. And it's going to be incredibly difficult to tell them they cannot uh, unless you want nobody coming. So um, that's going to be a really big challenge. You know, it's an odd thing to to right now, you see people walking around with bandanas over their, over their faces as if they're in an old Western, uh, like a gunslinger. And now we're going to see people coming to museums and banks and other places that protect high value items uh, with their faces covered. And we're going to have to figure out a way to uh, make sure we're safe, but welcoming to people who are fearful, fearful for their health. I'm just glad I'm not pushing a police car around in this era. I would not know how to deal with everybody wearing a mask. Mr. Anthony Amore, Director of Security, Isabel Stewart Garden Museum. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking about this very, very interesting and specific market in security. Fascinating. I, I have another guess and prediction that we're going to see a resurgence in culture in this country where people are going to say, listen, I miss my museum. I appreciate these things. And uh, I think it'll be good for business in the long run. Your lips to God's ears, Chuck. That's a great, uh, that's a great prediction. I hope you're right. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. It's been my pleasure. Yuna, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about artificial escalation in war game simulations. You know, what will machines fighting at hyperspeed mean to global security? Now, we've certainly seen this 
science fiction thing, going back to the 80s, even longer than that. Science fiction is here, isn't it? There's no more science fiction. We're there. And it certainly seems like we're trying to get there. And the fascinating thing is if you look back in the 80s, um, we were trying to get to this sort of future with robots back in the 80s as well. So we keep trying for this future. Well, it's it's not something I particularly aspire to, but it is fascinating as a topic. So what the Rand Corporation did uh, is you guys came up and decided, hey, you know, how do we answer this question? And you simulated a conflict between the United States, China, Japan, South Korea, and North Korea by conducting a war game exercise that was driven by AI autonomous forces. Tell us about how that came out and what, are, what were some of your key findings in that? So right now we're in a moment of time where there were, there were um, in a few going back a few years, and there was a moment in time where a lot of people in the Pentagon were saying, we really need to invest in artificial intelligence. We need to really invest in autonomous systems. And there was a theory out there that this is going to give us a lot of operational advantages on the battlefield. You're right, machines will be able to make uh, decisions faster. They will work with humans to make decisions, to improve human decision-making. They'll also be pairing, you know, people will be pairing with robots on the battlefield. They'll also, and also the the, the whole thing with unmanned systems and, and autonomous systems is saying, well, they'll reduce risk to human life, right? So we looked at that and, and went, well, you know, what happens to, to turns and escalation then? if you have artificial intelligence, if you have unmanned systems, because deterrence so far has been mostly about humans trying to deter other humans. But what happens if the thinking is no longer purely human, right? Do they, will machines understand the sort of um, deterrence dynamic that we try to, to signal to other countries, right? So in order for deterrence has to work, I have to persuade you that if you attack me, like bad things will happen. You know, how, how will machines understand that? And then also this idea of if you make decisions at machine speeds, now could you escalate a conflict at machine speeds? Um, also, if you no longer have human life at risk on the battlefield anymore, then does it mean it's harder now to deter? Because whereas if we went, to, you and I went to war before, right, and we're killing other you know, forces, right? We're, we're killing people. You know, that may not be something we want to do, but what happens if we could just destroy some systems that each other had, right? Shoot down some drones. And is that the same, right? Um, or is, you know, am I deterred if I take an action and then you'll sort of respond by destroying some of my systems versus if I put sort of a human there, Will you be more deterred because you don't want to shoot and kill the human? So this has a lot of implications because for U.S. alliances around the world, in places like Korea and places like Japan, the reason that we have U.S. troops is to deter attack on our allies, right? But what happens, for example, if we were to replace Americans abroad with machines? So we thought that was a fascinating question. And and another question we've gotten was about what about allies on the battlefield, right? So so when we have machines on the battlefield, right, so we um, have to understand our own machines. Our machines have to understand what we actually intend. We have to understand their machines. They have to understand our machines. You know, like, so this gets to be a very complicated web. Because if, if, it's, uh, if, it's, if it's Churchill and Eisenhower, they pick up the phone and talk. But if it's two AI systems, which have to be, by the way, protected against each other, even though there are allies, you just can't let France come in and see everything in your computer, right? Not the same as picking up the phone. That could create all kinds of human errors, really. 
Yes, and then now add in allies, and do you understand what your ally systems are doing? Do your That's allies right. understand what your systems are doing? There are some allies who won't use unmanned systems, right? Like they have a very different take on what they find acceptable. You know, like Germany is going to have a very different attitude about it. Um, you, in the Pacific, you have allies like South Korea and Japan who don't want to share information with each other, right? So what happens if they're not sharing information with each other about these systems, but you are all sort of out there on the battlefield? One of your findings was that machines will likely be worse at understanding the human signaling involved in deterrence, especially de-escalation. Can we really code intuition into AI systems? Because intuition at the end is what that human on the button is gonna make a decision on based on a million other things that you probably can't put into code. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this idea is a, called theory of mind. This idea that you know you understand that other beings can have thoughts or perceive things differently from you. And in humans, it emerges at an early age. So um, there are some conditions like autism where it's actually challenging to have theory of mind. So we can see even for humans, right? If um, something is off a little bit. Like you might not get theory of mind and this ability to maybe um, understand maybe the thoughts of someone else in the way that we, you and I are used to thinking about. Um, the other thing is, though, about um, anticipating someone else's thoughts. Um, in a sense, though, when we do that and say the robots may, or the machines can maybe do that, we do sort of anthropomorphize in a way that I think other writers have really picked up on and pointed out. Wired for War by P.W. Singer. He talks about during Iraq and Afghanistan when the United States fielded thousands of robots for the first time, that they were people who, like soldiers who actually bonded with their robot, gave it a personality, you know, wanted that robot fixed and not like a new robot. Um, so he raises some very interesting questions. And one of them is, for example, he tells this story, if I can remember correctly, uh, there was this robot system that was going around detonating mines and in this demonstration, but it would sort of blow off a part of itself as it kept doing this. And I think the person in charge of the demonstration like stopped it because they thought it was inhumane, right? So that was a situation where humans are have empathy for robots as if it's a living being, even though it's not. And then in that book, he raises the very interesting question of, do we actually forbid humans from doing certain things to robots to avoid desensitizing humans to doing things to other living beings? So that's a really interesting idea. Now, let me ask you a question about AI. And let's say, let's say we got to that point where we're giving control of our military systems to AI. Are AI systems going to be managing rules or will they have the ability to manage an exception? This is the basic flaw in all human decision making. We set a rule. We don't follow it. Things happen. We try to manage exceptions. It's not possible to do. And we have to start over all the time. So um, these are some very good questions, right? Because we have to think about how we want to set this up. So with AI, some people say there's sort of two basic types. One is rule-based. So if you remember Gary Kasparov, when he beat Deep Blue, um, and, you know, it was, you know, the match of the century and, you know, um, the machines had beaten like a human genius at chess, right? Like we remember that. Um, Deep Blue was a rule-based system, which is you programmed in the rules of chess. Um, AlphaGo, right? So it, it's so fascinating to me that if you look at the doc documentaries 
or both, there's so many of the same themes um, where it uh, uh, beats uh, the Korean, at least at all, the Korean master at Go, right? You have all this sort of same reaction, but um, AlphaGo is machine learning. So you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily following rules. It's sort of pattern matching. And so you don't necessarily know why it did something. And this is one of the drawbacks of machine learning is you, it's it, it's kind of inscrutable as to why it made that decision. Um, it can't really explain to you why they made that decision. Well, that sounds exactly like some of my guard forces over the years. So I think it's it's probably very close to the same thing. Uh, how do we guard against an AI system with machine learning turning against itself, turning against us, and defining us as a threat somehow? And that's, uh, that's the old HAL 9000, 2001 Space Odyssey idea, but certainly these are things that people must be considering when they're designing these systems. Uh, U.S. defense policy is the humans will be in the loop so that the humans will be able to control, are supposed to control and monitor these things, but we know in real life, right, there's a possibility of accidents, there's a possibility of disengagement, right? So a lot of people are concerned about, you know, can we get humans to trust the machines enough but there's this also this idea of overtrust where if you go on YouTube and you Google for people sleeping in their Teslas, right? There's a lot of that. Um, also in the Uber self-driving car, the human who's supposed to be in the loop and monitoring the road, right? She was watching a video as the car was driving. And that's why the woman crossing the road with her bicycle was hit and struck. So this whole idea of the how you build it so that there is human monitoring is important. Um, when I brief, when I give the full brief, um, people are very interested in many of these topics. Some people think I'm being overly alarmist. You know, some people think I'm not being alarmist enough. Um, you know, on this topic of the U.S. policy, official policy is that there will be humans in the loop and human oversight. Um, there are some people who say I they don't believe that because they think that if an adversary like China is going to much more autonomous decision-making, you know, much faster decision-making by robots, that we also wouldn't be able to resist because of the speed advantage that that gives us. So there are people who fully expect that we'll take the humans out of the loop um, at some point, even though we say that um, that's absolutely part of our philosophy of use. Well, I think in the end, it's going to come down to one thing, whether it's AI, machine learning, it's still going to be human error in the end, isn't it? That does its, that does its end. That's usually what happens in the history of the world. It's uh, human error. Human error can definitely be a part of it. And I think the whole incident with Uber and all the incidents with Tesla, I think can very, in a very visual way, because there's lots of video, uh, demonstrate to you, even if we have all these systems and we have all these policies and we have all these rules, sometimes how, you know, throwing humans into the mix might actually, how it might actually play out. Yuta Wong, the RAND Corporation. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Fascinating conversation and good luck to you. Thank you so much. Michael, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, today we're going to talk about global management, specifically security in the Middle East. And boy, uh, at the time of this recording, a lot of things going on. Why don't you give us just a general uh, update status on what's happening in the Middle East region? Well, as you know, with the COVID virus, the industry is changing at a rapid pace. The resilience of organizations, the front line of the security guards, the uh, front lines of hotel ambassadors, individuals that meet and greet people, expats moving, lack of clarity as far as regulations and laws 
related to a particular country when it deals with a pandemic. Things are shifting, things are moving, uh, as well as maybe the political side of each country and each nation. So if, if we were going to set up shop today as a security company or as a corporation, and I'm, I'm a big guy on training, right? I think training is the first place you start. What, might you, what advice might you give to start a training program over there, possibly before you arrive in the area or after you arrive? What are some of the key points that are going to benefit people with a good training program? You know, I always say that the most important thing is to understand the culture that you're about to immerse yourself in, as well as the cultural and the sensitivities and the customs of the individuals you're training. Understanding and relating a, a topic or an educational platform has to be something that is clearly understood by the individual that you're teaching, as well as applicable to the customs or laws within that particular nation, country, or, or township or tribe. Understanding the culture for me is, is the biggest, and it's something that we always try to stress multinational firms that come in and provide the training. Is there a desire to go the other way for the company who's the visitor to the region? Is there a desire for them to help the hosting company understand their corporate culture? Does that help in any way? You know, it does, but there's certain things that are, are, are tribal. There's certain things that are also customary. There's also key words and key phrases. Um, and so those are important to understand what are gestures, how are gestures, and, and what is that culture? And is that culture encroaching on their views or belief? Is it a past colonialism issue? Is it a negative imagery that could cause a, a particular incident or an issue of the person that you're training? All those things need to be uh, taken into consideration when you're providing that type of training or that organization to provide training. So sounds like when in Rome may be the best practice. Correct. Let's move on to uh, some threats now. If you say Middle East and threats, uh, we could talk for about 10 hours on that. But uh, give me an idea what are some of the major issues going on in the area? What's the threat landscape as of today? Because uh, as in your previous statement, certainly that's changed uh, given COVID-19. You know, everybody has a different terminology and word for threats. I tend to look at social risk um, and social risk is a threat. And so I think the number one source of disruption in our world today and the greatest threat is to public and private sectors around the world is social risk. It could be as easy as a, a protest. It could be easy as a view that the individuals who are testing for COVID are the ones who actually brought the virus to a particular tribe or particular area. It is an ill-defined, unaccountable uh, indicator that things are not looked at in, in the way that social risk has caused an enormous amount of chaos or an enormous amount of chatter or, let's say, disruption in the world. So social risk actually is, is the most number one because with social risk, you can look at potential terrorism issues. You can look at strikes. You can look at criminality. You can look at cyber. You can look at all the different types of, of risks that are currently out there. I agree with you 100%. I've always said, uh, going back to the beginning of my career, that all security is local, all security is now, and all security is personal. So if I'm behaving properly and the guy next to me is behaving properly, and you continue that circle, we're all better off. And the second an individual starts acting improperly is when we're unsafe. So it really does come down to individual responsibility to make us all safer. Correct. Now, let's talk about some challenges. So I, I'm a I'm a brand new guy. I just got this corporate job. I've been shipped over there. I got to set up my department. What are some challenges I'm going to have? And really, this isn't about threats per se. Let's just talk about kind of the nuts and bolts of, of establishing yourself as a security manager in that region. Part of it is how you re how are you relatable? Do you understand? Do you bond? Um, 
in a different language or different culture, let's just say Middle East, do you know what is the first thing that people look for is do you understand maybe one or two words of a particular language? Uh, do you understand that custom of greeting? Do you understand how to say good morning? Um, the number one issue is how relatable are you and how um, knowledgeable are you of that culture? And so I, I always go back to social risk. I go to back to culture. I go back to understanding your environment. Um, or if you want to use military words, situational awareness. It is important that whether you're your new security manager or you're a multinational or you're providing training, always understand your environment that you're operating in. Understand the most basic things are the things that are so important and able to secure yourself, to take care of your own physical security, but also to create bonding relationships. For the security manager, is there a certain level at which can you only go so far as a security manager and then you're just prevented from doing anything further because of culture and all the other components there? Yeah, I think, yes. So if you're an expat, security manager coming into a location that you're not national for, you are limited. But really, what is your job there? And I always believe that, you know, human capital is underutilized in certain areas, whether it's Middle East or Africa. Most companies fail to see the value of building those lasting organic relationships in the areas that we operate in. They fail to connect with the local community, utilize local human capital. And as a good expat security manager organization, you want to leverage that, you know, this old approach, you know, as it relates to uh, you need to only hire uh, people from our nation or people from, uh, uh, you know, first world countries, not true anymore because you need to understand the local context. So as a security manager or anybody that you're hiring or bringing in, you want to build capital and with, by building capital, you uh, build the reality, you, offer the perception of reality as it relates to you're going to give them a career and your job is to really train the next person to take your position so you can move on. I think that those are the opportunities if you see it as an opportunity, but if you see that your job is just to sit there and be able to make a high salary to have the name, but never be able to leave a legacy or create a career path for an individual, that's as far as you're ever going to get. Is uh, ESRM caught on in the area? Is that something that people are working towards adopting or, or are there just too many cultural barriers there to make that work? You know, that's a really good, that's a really good question. What we do in the Western world doesn't typically work in the environment that we're in. So I work in probably, or, or mostly the most horrendous environments, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, Syria, other places as well. And so those frameworks don't work. Uh, with, within the areas that I work in. They're tools for security managers and they're, they're aspects that are needed. But when you're dealing with a, a local national who as a legal framework within the nation has no security sector reform or no security compliance processes, it's hard to provide that ESRM solution or continuity when they themselves have not even been trained. And again, we're trying to implement a Western-based process in a country that probably doesn't even have running water. So maybe that whole program needs to change and be more localized. Excellent points, Michael. Thanks for coming to Security Management Highlights and be safe. Thank you. You too.